The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to The Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Molly Jean Bennett. This week, we have two conversations with people who are working to make our financial systems more just and equitable. First, we'll hear from Kat Taylor and Matt Anderson of Beneficial State Bank, a certified B Corp that holds to what it calls a triple bottom line of social justice, environmental well-being, and economic sustainability. Then we'll talk to John Haynes about Mercy Corps Northwest's pioneering community investment trust. This is Phil Buskett. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are pleased to be joined in the studio with Matt Anderson, who is the Director of Nonprofit Banking for Beneficial State Bank, and on the phone, I believe crossing the Bay Bridge right now, uh, the co-CEO of Beneficial State Bank, Kat Taylor. How are you doing, Kat? Very well. Thank you very much for having us today. Absolutely. You know, so I want to start by talking about the, the, the origin story. So you and your husband, Tom, um, founded One California Bank, which eventually became Beneficial State Bank. Can, can we start with how did that name come about and, and why does that name matter? What does it mean? Sure. So our hunch was that the banking system is very, very powerful, drives a lot of societal, not just economic outcomes, and is quasi-public in nature because of the FDIC insurance. So we wanted to take a stab at a bank that was super aligned in the public interest and could be a change maker to change the banking system for good uh, because that will drive better outcomes for people and planet. Originally, my husband gave the name One California to the bank because we were only operating in California and he wanted to reference the adage, we're all in one boat meaning that we do better together than we can apart and we're no better off than the worst persons, um, the worst outcomes for anybody. Uh, we, over time, uh, we were born in an extraordinary time in banking history, 2007. As you all know, right after that, the uh, housing bubble burst, credit contracted deeply in the U.S. economy, and we went into the Great Recession. Uh, by 2008 and 9, um, there was hardly a consumer left standing. We had, we had lost a lot of homes to foreclosure, uh, and many of the banks were very unstable. Um, that, if anything, just accelerated our mandate to grow a bank model that could serve a triple bottom line, social justice, environmental well-being, and financial sustainability, because after all, we need to be an economically viable entity to use the magic tool of banking. Uh, but we needed to do it quickly uh, because we were accelerating towards two degrees of climate change and social chaos based on income and wealth disparity. So we adopted a M&A strategy only with aligned institutions who shared our mission zeal, uh, but we needed to grow quickly. So we grew organically about 20% a year but we also have purchased four uh, common purpose institute banking institutions and have merged them together. That took us outside of California, and you don't use a name like One California in the state of Oregon or the state of Washington. Uh, so we thought hard. We had an interim name, One Pacific Coast Bank, but we really wanted our name to signify our mission, not just our ecological bioregion of service. Beneficial State Bank was chosen to imply a beneficial state of mind and being for all people based on a, a values-driven banking system. Kat, that, 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 is, that was a lot of information. I want to unpack some of it a little bit. Um, so, so in some ways, the, the banking crisis of 2008 really did become an opportunity for reform, um, and, it, and it seems as if this model... Uh, is is one of could be one of the, the ways forward for positive banking. Absolutely, a values driven bank can create more value over time, have more resilient profitability, and change the banking system for good by mere adoption. Kent Taylor is the co CEO of Beneficial State 
Beneficial State Bank. Uh, she's talking to us on the phone as she drives from San Francisco to Oakland, uh, or vice versa. And this is the nonprofit hours. So I want to talk about uh, why we're talking to a bank CEO and Matt Anderson, who's the director of nonprofit banking for Beneficial State Bank, and also why we're talking to uh, about this in Portland. Um, part of that is is that uh, Beneficial State Bank has somewhat recently uh, uh, taken over Albina Community Bank, and I'm sorry if that's not quite the the, the right term of art for that. But Albina Community Bank has has been a longtime uh, supporter of projects and nonprofits in the Portland area. Um, Kat, can you talk a little bit about why the interest in taking or in having control or, or of a community bank in Portland? Uh, sure. So I mentioned that we recognized early in our history that we needed to expand quickly in order. We're, we have no intention of. Uh, you know, taking over a large share of the banking system. The banking system is huge, uh, but also uh, the main institutions in it are giant. Uh, we are almost a billion dollars in assets over a 10-year growth period. Uh, the largest banks in the system are, some of them are well over $2 trillion in assets. So we're not going to change the system by becoming it. Um, we're, our theory of change is that first we had to prove that a triple bottom line bank could be an economically viable competitor in the system. And then our thesis is as we gain an influence, we can uh, influence the large regional banks to adopt more of our commitments and they run deep. They're way beyond the triple bottom line even in a way that shifts the system over time. So in order to get that growth early, we were very open to the possibility of merging with like-minded banks. And in fact, because of the capital formation dynamics, it was very hard for smaller community banks who hold our mission to raise capital in the middle of the recession, but they were very hard hit uh, by the recessionary effects and uh, a lack of access to capital. So it was our privilege to be asked in all cases by regulators uh, to facilitate recapitalization of some of the small banks who were doing great work but needed uh, more capital to uh, keep going. Um, Albina Community Bank is a long-standing high-service bank um, uh, formed in Portland in the African-American districts of the Albina District. Uh, really wonderful history, incredible, excellent customer service very important lending practice to small businesses and the communities that we care the most about. Um, they were having trouble raising capital because uh, smaller banks just do, uh, particularly in the middle of a large contraction. Um, so we were honored to be able to buy new stock in the bank that recapitalized it, put it back in good standing from its capital ratio standpoint, and allowed it to fight another day. Uh, we own 90% of the bank. We are sister banks with them. We uh, bring as much of our operations together as will make both banks stronger, but we are separate legal entities until we can buy uh, the last 9.9%. Um, we cherish the practice that Albina has in the m five markets that they serve in Portland and look forward to them possibly being able to expand into some new communities of need. Um, uh, and we basically work arm-in-arm arm at this point. Um, well, absolutely. I mean, Beneficial State Bank certainly aligns mission-wise with Albina Community Bank in terms of reinvestment. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about where where is this coming from for, for you and for your husband to have started a bank this way? Certainly, you didn't need to start a bank in this way, but but there seems to have been a desire or a want uh, can you explain a little bit where that comes from? Where where does your interest in community building uh, and and um, social justice, environmental justice come from, and and why put that into play in 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 a business format? Sure. Um, so I think we feel it's our responsibility, Tom Steyer and myself, to use any opportunity set that has been granted us or that we've earned in service of the public interest. And we should be smart about how we do it. Um, so I was raised with a strong commitment to civil rights. Um, I was born in 1958. My earliest memories were of all the 
civil rights-related funerals and the incredible activism that it required to dismantle or attempt to dismantle a racial caste system. I waited a long time to learn and study and figure out how I could be of highest service. And about the time we were both getting out of graduate school, the civil rights leadership was uh, alerting everybody that the legal and political rights that were so hard fought and hard and importantly won needed to be paired with economic opportunity and access or they would not come to real fruition. That was the time at which a bunch of the socially responsible bank institutions were born and grew up, including South Shore Bank in Chicago, Self-Help Credit Union in North Carolina and New York, and even the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. Um, so that was an opportunity for me. I come from a banking family. I had some experience in banking. Both Tom and I were, are in the fields of finance uh, to think about how we could help the banking the socially responsible banking movement moved to its 2.0 version. Having said that, we are deeply involved in uh, climate uh, and, and energy and environmental work because of the dire consequences of not addressing climate change. We don't ever separate social justice and environmental well-being. They have flip sides of the same coin. In fact, a lot of the ways we've prosecuted our natural resource agenda in every era has resulted in incredible social, social injustices. We started the bank uh, to be the magic tool, the thing that could actually change the banking system. Uh, business drives a lot of outcomes. It's impossible to clean up the bad ones with governmental and philanthropic capital. We have to get business right in the first place and hold it to very, very high standards because of its power. So the bank gave us those operating insights and a, a tool to try to shift the system towards more beneficial outcomes. We also are very involved in the food system, running a ranch, but that's for another day. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's so much leverage that the banking system can have. And I want to talk about some of the specifics when we come back from a music break. Uh, one of the things, Kat, that we do is we, we ask our guests to have a song that they may want to play that either relates to the work you do. Uh, or just as a favorite song, do you have something you can have us cue up? So I, sorry, I'm going to defer to Matt. Well, thanks, Kat. Um, first one that came to mind was Window in the Sky by U2. Um, U2 is one of my favorite bands, and this song, you know, might think it's kind of cheesy, but it's about what love can do and how love can break down chains and really change the world. And, and I think our bank is, you know, in a way trying to do the, the same thing with changing the banking system with good intentions and being socially and environmentally responsible. So let's take a listen. Strange enemies 
That was you too, Window in the Sky. I this is Phil Bussey. I'm talking with Kat Taylor, who is co-CEO of Beneficial State Bank, and Matt Anderson, who's director of nonprofit banking for Beneficial State Bank. And um, Matt, I want to talk to you a little bit here about how how is Portland and how are nonprofits in Portland uh, seen, uh, for lack of words, the benefits of Beneficial State Banking? Yeah, well, nonprofits are are you know vital po- part of Portland's population and, and business makeup. Um, in fact, there are a little over 31,000 nonprofits uh, today in Portland. And of those, about 20,000 are public charities. Um, that most of those carry the 501c3 status. So what that means is that equates to about 183,000 jobs. You know, population of Portland is about 620,000. So 183,000 of those people are working for nonprofits, and so um, you know, and the payroll generated from that in a year is about 8.7 billion. So it's a you know viable and vital um, not only source of economy but also um, source of you know economic uh, or you know community and environmental um, resiliency um, that these nonprofits. I mean, what they're doing for the community, our community. Um, is is great and why beneficial state I mean it aligns perfectly with our mission and also all the wonderful people of Portland you know that I think that's why there's kind of a high concentration of nonprofit activity here because it's in our you know it's in our bones it's in our blood and um, and so that's why yeah I mean the bank has had a lot of success in Portland um, with nonprofits and with you know for-profit companies. If I could put you on the spot right now, Matt, um, could you make a sales pitch for for a nonprofit that is shopping around for a bank? Why, why go with uh, why go with Beneficial State Bank or Albina Community Bank um, as opposed to larger banks that I won't name by name? <laughs> yeah, of course, I love that question. Um, you know, there's many reasons, uh, and I'll try to keep it uh, short. Um, but um, the the first one, I think it's good to align. You know, nonprofits like to align um, with partners and I think you know bank a bank it is and should be one of their partners that they look with so align uh, your partners with your values of your organization and if uh, it, you know it's important to you how the environment is treated and how the community is treated you know if I'm talking to the nonprofit organization if it's important for you then um, then you should really talk to, to beneficial state uh, or Albina bank um, we also are a certified B Corp which means we value you know planet uh, people and profits on an equal basis, and uh, and with that comes some cost savings um, for um, for not only the the loan products we have, but also deposit products. So when we do cost comparisons against the big banks or even the smaller regional banks, uh, you know, nine times and, and probably more than nine times out of ten, we are uh, less expensive than those competing banks. So it's, it makes financial sense and it makes um, values and ethical sense to uh to align uh, with a bank like like us so i saw that you guys had a recent event at revolution hall here in portland uh can you talk about uh what what was that and 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 who were some of the people that were participating yeah sure we had a great event at revolution hall very cool venue uh we invited our client base 
um, as kind of a client appreciation. And, and we also invited uh, the public just to come and, and learn about the bank and to listen to some great music. We had live music and, and food and, and drinks. Um, everybody got a, that came got a free drink ticket and as much pizza and, and uh, other good sandwiches that we had. So it was it was and we had some some uh, other mission aligned vendors that were there talking about what they do and why that's important to them. So we really opened this up to the public, you know, but also our, our clients to come and just um, and get a good flavor of, of who we are and, and what we're trying to do here. And and I want to just Matt just talk to you a little bit longer about so you you were commercial in commercial lending for fifteen years previous to coming to uh, Beneficial State Bank. Why why the change in your career? What what drew you over uh, to to the specific bank and in this style and, and mission? Well, uh, it's a it's a long story, but it's 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 a great story. Um, so I was actually uh, my wife was. Um, was interviewed for a job we had recently um, l left a financial um, institution and um, and so we we both went on a joint interview to you know, beneficial state bank which was called one Pacific Coast Bank back then and um, and we told them our story and they hired both of us um, you know a, a couple weeks later and and the reason that we um, we, we made the switch uh, was because uh, working, uh, you know, my whole life, I guess, working for a company that profits were the only thing they cared about, the bottom line, and you know, I felt like a number or a barcode there. Just you know, make, you know, every last fee, make sure you get that in there, and every last little whatever to kind of stick it to the customer. Um, and that that's that just doesn't resonate well with me. And um, and and beneficial state bank though, you know, really having a heart. And, and they cared about, you know, our story. They cared about our background and they wanted to learn about it and they did and they took the time and, and, you know, being a certified B Corp and, and, you know, they, they walked the, walked the talk. And so, um, it, it felt so much better to know that I wasn't working to get white rich guys richer, that I was working hard, um, and putting in those hours to, you know, help our community, help our environment. So you've been with, uh, Beneficial State Bank for a bit over a year now? Um, five years. Oh, for uh, five, five and a half. So yeah, that's a bit over years. a year. Yeah, yeah five and a half <laughs> yeah. years. Um, and and talk to me about um, maybe one of the examples of of something that like a success story or a way that that the bank has really been able to um, support or help grow one of the local nonprofits or or community projects. Oh, sure, sure. So yeah, there are a number of uh, wonderful nonprofits that we love to uh, partner with here in, in Portland, and uh, and one that has signed our, our public release form is uh, is one of my favorite clients. Uh, it's uh, Rose CDC, and Rose CDC is a, a nonprofit organization that um, does uh, affordable housing, helps support affordable housing, and create affordable housing in Southeast Portland. Um, and so um, we have helped them on a, a few projects, um, refinancing some um, some some affordable housing and um, and we're also in the midst of helping them with um, a new project um, which is um, which is which involves a new product of our bank that we've developed um, well we haven't developed but it's a new product that our bank is offering um, exclusively for nonprofits and uh, and so that will be the first uh, Portland uh, loan to, to go through this product which is the um, the snap bond that's a tax-exempt loan product which ultimately results in a lower interest rate for the borrower uh, Rose CDC in this case and it's um, it's a wonderful product because the um, the the cost savings that Rose enjoys will enable them to carry out their mission even more than before and it's a uh, net net zero impact on the bank so while we are getting less interest income we are also not paying income tax on that interest income so to us the ROE is the same and to Rose they get a lower interest rate and they are able to carry out their mission even more so it's a like a double win for us we're on the phone with Kat Taylor who's co-CEO of Beneficial State Bank and in the studio with Matt Anderson director of nonprofit banking Kat, I'm curious. Not, has this all played out like you had you had expected it to play out? I mean, it 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 seems to be going very well for Beneficial State Bank, and it seems to be having an enormous impact um, in California, Oregon, and Washington. Is is this what when you wrote out a business plan? Is this what you saw happening? Is or is it has it gone in a different direction? Well, 
I have to say we've been on the design side every second of our existence, meaning we have to figure things out as we go. So we knew we had to prove a bank model. That has gone very well. We do believe on the basis of core earnings, the bank is very sustainable while delivering on its triple bottom line. We have achieved pretty good growth at almost a billion in assets at the bank family level of the bank holding company. We have 225 wonderful colleagues throughout the three West Coast states. The product set is proliferating from high road, used car, auto lending to sophisticated commercial loans. We are in high, held in high regard by our regulators. All of that is going very, very well. Um, and we're seeing signs of shift in the main banking system. Uh, I think you uh, on this station, on this program have acknowledged uh, the power that Dakota Access Pipeline and other similar coming together of activism has exerted on uh, business and systems of finance. Uh, we definitely have seen deposits migrate based on the triumvirate of people deeply concerned in uh, Dakota Access Pipeline um, language of the trampling on indigenous rights, the threatening of a local critical resource called water and the acceleration of global climate change. That was very motivating to, and, and thanks to the heroicism of the activists, very visible to a lot of people to change their banking relationship to not be affiliated with that activity. Uh, we are seeing in the divest invest community that uh, these large philanthropic organizations who made that commitment know what they don't want to invest in, but they need a richer menu of what they could invest in. Uh, but probably the biggest shift is human capital. We host a fellows program every summer, and we get hundreds of applications for 8 to 12 slots. These are young people in college and business school who may never have thought they wanted to work in a bank setting, but they get the magic tool that a bank can be, um, and they want alignment in their own lives. They want what they do uh, every day occupationally to serve the value set that they care deeply about. So these are important steps toward a migration of the banking system towards more benefit. We often say, unfortunately, that the banking system has been dragging a train of misery, inflicting um, uh, abuses on consumers, underpaying their colleagues, uh, doubling down on the fossil fuel economy that we just can't tolerate anymore. So one way to end the train of misery is to migrate uh, banks toward uh, practices of benefit to all and harm to none, at least in the ideal. That's what we should all be striving for. And I want to pick up on, on a point that, that you, went, you, you, you talked about briefly was this fellowship program. Um, I, I think that's really, that's, that's fascinating to think about. Uh, there might be some activist out there who has never thought of him or herself uh, a, a, as a banker, but could have an incredible amount of powers that can, can um, either Kat or Matt, can you talk a little bit more about that? The fellowship program is run by Beneficial State Foundation. We recruit them to come for a summer experience. They go through a common core curriculum, including a speaker series where they learn about the power of banking and the promise of beneficial banking. But they also perform um, a task that's mentored by a bank executive and creates an authentically needed deliverable for the bank. So it's a rich program, and it's a, a close cohort. Our cohorts of, of fellows uh, seem to stay together after the fact as well, and some of them come back to work for us full-time when they're done with their education. Sounds fantastic. Um, I, I want to just um, wrap up our discussion. Matt, you wanted to um, share a few more stories about some success stories here in, in Portland or in, in the region? Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely do that. Um, and one other point that I want to reemphasize that Kat touched on is that, um, you know, not only should organizations be able to expect a bank to, you know, n not harm the environment, um, but it should also um, expect that bank to add value to the environment of the community. Um, and so Beneficial State does nothing that could potentially harm the environment or the community. Uh, in fact, each relationship, whether it's a loan or deposit, um, we heavily scrutinize to, for any contra mission aspects. 
Uh, so this scan eliminates any company that might engage in unclean energy production, unhealthy food production, uh, charging rents that are well above market value, and any other, any other unsavory history inconsistent with our mission and values. Um, and as far as uh, yeah, the the projects that um, that I've done here locally um, and in this region with that have been high impact for the bank, um, one was uh, Pine Street Market, which is located downtown. Um, Pine Street Market before it became Pine Street Market was a uh, it was an empty building that had been a teen nightclub in the past, and you know initially it was a horse parking garage back in the day, um, but it sat vacant for quite some time. And, uh, and a development team uh, led by um, J.P. Vallee with uh, SiteWorks, uh, David Davies, and Rob Brewster. Um, they converted this unproductive asset um, into a awesome food hall with the who's who of Portland on the ground level and two floors of office space on the, uh, the top two floors. And so we were helped to... Uh, we were proud to help uh, them finance that um, that acquisition and um, conversion into the food hall, and now it's a you know wonderful, productive um, asset in the community, and we're we're really proud of that. And I think that's that's one of those great examples of I've been there there a dozen times, you know, and it's great food, it's great, um, there's great different restaurants and coffee shops, but but I, I never once did I stop to think, well, like I wonder how the financing of this came about. <laughs> right, right. A lot of people don't think about that, but yeah, it. I mean, it takes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's really a true partnership between the developer and the the financing team, and uh, and we were able to achieve that for Pine Street Market. Very cool. This is Phil Bussey. It's been the Nonprofit Hour on X Ray FM. We've been talking to Matt Anderson, who's director of Nonprofit Banking, and thank you, Cat Taylor, for taking time uh, to speak to us on the phone. Cat, Cat Taylor is the co-CEO of Beneficial State Bank. Uh, thank you both for all the great work that you guys are doing to uh, support uh, the community here in Portland as well as uh, uh, hopefully change the, some of the ways that the banks do business. Thank you very much. Thank you.
This is Phil Bussey on the Nonprofit Hour. That was the great Miles Davis. We chose because our guest, John Haynes, Executive Director of Mercy Corps Northwest, uh, is a big fan. Uh, John and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. I have been for a long time. Um, let's start the interview off with a little bit of flattery and, and uh, talking about who you are and what Mercy Corps Northwest is. Uh, obviously, uh, I, our listeners and people all over the world are aware of Mercy Corps, but Mercy Corps Northwest is a bit of a different mission, correct? No, same mission, different location. <laughs> okay. We're, we're a country program of Mercy Corps, which works globally in places of conflict, crisis, economic collapse, and that looks different from Syria to Afghanistan to South Sudan and Portland and Oregon, Washington in general. So we do the work of Mercy Corps uh, in Pacific Northwest. And, and, and let's have some details on that. Uh, Community Investment Trust, that's, that's one of the new programs, uh, new-ish programs? Yeah, it's new-ish. Yeah, <laughs> it's been incubating for a number of years, but, but it's, uh, it's alive right now on 122nd Market. It's a uh, private real estate investment trust for low dollar investors for anybody targeting people that haven't had an access to an investment it's a it's really a tool for financial inclusion that we want to do well in portland and then launch it nationwide later this year let's so that's a lot of stuff to unpack let's let's start with uh describe what it looks like uh on 120th uh and describe the building the neighborhood and why that's important. Yeah, maybe maybe why it's important is that uh, for a number of years, we've been working mostly in Lentz, but in outer Southeast, um, Division, Midway, Rosewood, uh, Lentz, et cetera. And we'd spent time with some university teams, uh, particularly some Willamette MBA students over a couple of cycles of years that have a kind of a nonprofit entrepreneurship class. And it's a credit class, so they pay attention. And, and the students come in teams from around the world. So one year we had a particularly interesting team that uh, had good financial analysis skills, and uh, they could speak several languages. There was Russian, uh, a woman from Nigeria, um, Russian, Spanish, trying to think of another. Anyway, it was a good group that could get into Lentz Farmer's Market in that area and talk with people. And we were asking them, What's missing in the neighborhood? How can we be part of making some change that you could be involved with? And they responded with, uh, we need these kind of businesses. We want a bike-related business. We want a place that has food. We want a bank branch, a number of other things, pizza restaurant. Um, and then we asked them if they had invested um, or they invested or saved. And by and large, people said they didn't invest. Why? We don't understand. And we only have a little bit of money at the end of the month. So we took that information, essentially what's called kind of a um, human-centered design, although I don't think anybody called it that, but essentially took the information we gathered from people and built a financial product that connected to what their aspirations were. And that involved real estate. Yeah, and, and, and again, I want to keep drilling in on this because it's, it's, it's a fascinating and important project. Um, but I still want to talk about the neighborhood first. And you, you mentioned Spanish, Russian. Uh, there, there are large populations uh, that are not necessarily hipsters. This is not Portlandia out there. These are, there's a lot of uh, Russian immigrants. Uh, there's a large Vietnamese population uh, from uh, late 70s, late 80s that, that settled into that neighborhood. Uh, Spanish, Mexican uh, population. It's, I mean, it's a really... Yeah, wonderful more, more and more uh, um, recently arrived uh, um, Arabic speaking and then a big Somali community diverse Somali community that's been there for a long time so the neighborhood uh, just some snapshot of of the dimensions of it is that that roughly two-thirds of the people that live in the neighborhood are renters so in a sense we built a financial product for them to have a, a stake in the upside or when hipsters do move there, which incidentally they are, and it'll gentrify, et cetera, and that's a bad word, right? Um, but as inevitable as it is, this creates a pathway for people to have a stake in that, um, in real estate. So when people told us we want something that represents um, the community, we want to be part of something, and we want it to be local. Um, if I can look at a building and say, that's mine, I'm a part of that, it's, it, it has a different ripple 
has a different uh, motivation for people to be involved. Uh, so the building itself reflects, I think, well, as well as we could, the di dimensions of diversity um, and aspirations in the neighborhood. So it's 29,000 square feet. It's a 1962 modernist building built on farmland. Can can you get 29,000 square feet? How many? Uh, can can we translate that to football fields or? Yeah. To <laughs> Um, so, so we're on North Mississippi. So that'd be from like Porque No up until the Fresh Pot or like the entire rebuilding center times two. No, I'd say it's the rebuilding center, um, about 50% of it. But it okay. has, what you see, it has a basement. So it looks bigger than it, it is bigger than it looks. But you always hear real estate people say that. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it houses, the key thing is it houses a diverse range of, of uh, tenants, long-term tenants, 27 uh, there's a Latino and hair salon. It's an anchor tenant. There's a, a low cost funeral preparation place, which, uh, um, is, is our newest tenant tax preparers in two languages, an insurance provider, uh, an importer of Russian creams and lotions, a Somali owned taxi company. And then there's nonprofits, uh, a gang prevention group called Morpheus Youth Project. We, we had and we had Carlos uh, Chavez on on our on our program. He was yeah. he's fantastic. And uh, and then there's a transgender um, youth and family education group called Transactive. Another group called Pathfinders of Oregon, which does work with with the families of incarcerated people. So it's a uh, a really good mix of of what the community I think will respond favorably to as an investment. And, and and so uh, talk to me about their finance relationship to the building then. They are part owners, is that correct? Yeah, a private real estate investment trust or a REIT. Um, we call it a community investment trust just to, to rebrand it in a sense because um, we're trying to do something different, which number one is to, to create a, uh, a price point that's lower and monthly. So people budget, prepare. We offer classes now in five languages to get people understanding the dimensions of what the investment is, how to budget, how to carve out 10 bucks to 100 bucks a month. And so the people in the neighborhood, anybody that lives within four zip codes can can buy into the investment. And uh, over time, they'll get a dividend based on tax laws on REITs, uh, which require 90% distribution to taxable income. So everybody gets in a dividend every year. If you own a home, mortgage pays down debt, you build wealth long-term that way. And secondarily, um, as you see in Portland, in this neighborhood in particular, um, when it goes up in value, the share price goes up by that as well. So people have a short-term investment, short-term return, and more importantly, a long-term investment that'll, that'll gain over time. And, and let's take a quick music break. And when we come back, I want to talk about how you're replicating this uh, for other locations in other cities. Um, you have something queued up for us? Yeah, let's go... Greg Allman passed away recently. Um, I've been listening to a lot of the Allman Brothers. All right, let's take a listen.
That was the Allman Brothers. This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are talking with John Haynes, Executive Director of Mercy Corps Northwest, uh, among many other projects. Uh, current one that they have been working on, the Community Investment Trust uh, in Far East Side, Portland. Um, th- it, this is a, it's it's an interesting model, um, and you guys have brought it now to the point that it can be replicated. Is that correct? Right. I- is it is it is are the circumstances out in in East Portland so unique that it makes it difficult to replicate, or are you finding that these are not very unique circumstances in that uh, multicultural neighborhood, uh, 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 a population that that is maybe owing more than it's owning, and uh, sitting in a neighborhood that the a wave of development or gentrification is probably going to hit, which means it will raise property values for uh, those owners eventually. How unique are those circumstances uh, and how much do those matter for the model to succeed? Um, unfortunately, it's not um, uncommon, I think, around the the West Coast in particular. I'd be interested in seeing this happen in, in places that have reached out to us. Uh, New Orleans, Lower Ninth Ward, places that haven't recatalyzed. Um, rural Kentucky, Places like that. And in rural communities, there's a lot of opportunities to replicate this that are going to be different. Uh, this is one that fits the dimensions of what challenges we're facing in Portland. Uh, what kind of kills me about it is that uh, it took us years of uh, research and movement and testing to make this model work to fit Portland and to fit outer southeast Portland. Um, but, but it's replicable, we think, in various forms um, anywhere. One of the key things we needed to do when we are dealing with with multicultural neighborhoods is translate a class, a curriculum that we developed called Moving from Owing to Owning. It's four sessions. People ask for it, so we offer it. Um, and we have it translated in into Arabic, Spanish, Russian. And we're looking at uh, Somali, two languages where we have pronounced interest, Somali and, and possibly Burmese. Um, I think that's an important part is connecting to people with leaders in the community. So we don't teach those classes. We coach people in the neighborhood to, to, to teach the classes um, so they can do them with, with their own community. That's a marketing mechanism and it's a level of trust. And then we stipend the teachers uh, $25 an hour for teaching the classes. We do daycare and, and, I, I and think- food. I think that points towards uh, one of the important attributes of the communities. I mean, we, we talked about some of the detrimental uh, statistics. One third of the homes are actually owned there. Two thirds of the population are renting. Uh, one fifth of the population is in poverty. But, but an important uh, attribute and, and that you've been talking about is the strong community sense there. These, these, uh, and that seems to be essential for the success of it as well, is that there is a community identity uh, that there are leaders within the community um, that that you can Mercy Corps Northwest can come in and help support and encourage that. Yeah, I think it's uh, there's a lot of churches there. There's a big Slavic community. David Douglas High School is four blocks from the building. That's the most diverse, high performing, interesting high school in the state. And uh, you know that community that that filters around that and Park Rose as well. Park Rose is within the, the geographic boundary as is, it touches into Reynolds as well. Um, all three good school districts, uh, um, non-PPS school districts, by the way, you know, non-public Portland public schools. So we very often in the echo chamber of Portland don't think of those school districts um, that are part of Portland, just not part of Portland public schools. Um, so building from schools, churches and neighborhood associations and East Portland Action Plan, that convening is, is, there's a lot of good community leaders. I think what's even more interesting and important is the people that emerge as leaders from who takes the class and want to have a bigger stake and role than they've had before. Yeah, how, how are you measuring, measuring success? What are, I mean, is it, is it uh, qualitative with in terms of finding leaders in the community? Is it quantitative in terms of uh, uh, asset and and value earned? What's, what are the measurements here? Well, we put them into three buckets uh, for impact measurement. Um, one is we've established a baseline. We have a, so- a sociology professor who retired and moved here from University of Wyoming, and he's been doing a lot of baseline work for us. 
um, which is important to reflect back as you forget as people move, oh, what was it like when we started? Look at this neighborhood around North Mississippi. There aren't a lot of people around, um, particularly those that moved here, that their baseline is when they moved here, not what it was when this was a thriving African-American community, um, you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, um, and certainly before that. So a baseline is important. Then we look at the individual level. Do people commit to the investment? Do they make the investment? Do they do they stay with it? Um, does it generate a, a return that's satisfactory to them? Um, and how does it affect their family? Do they are they meeting some of their goals and aspirations through this investment? Again, it's a modest investment by most people's means, but if it's a first time investment, it's an on ramp to financial inclusion. So number one is is financial and personal family. Um, second is how does the how do the businesses perform in the building? In other words, if they have in our case, we'll have probably four to five hundred investors uh, in this property. Um, do the businesses do better? Do they get more support? Do they get more business? And then we really want to tease out what happens to the community. Do people engage more? Do they join groups? Do they vote? Um, do they feel like the neighborhood's safer? Do they become activists for traffic safety, bike safety? Um, it sounds like a lot of Robert like Putman bowling alone stuff, or the, the, the antithesis of that. Yeah. We are talking with John Haynes, Mercy Corps Northwest Executive Director. John, you've been in that position for... 14 years. 14 years. It's a long time. Yeah, it is. <laughs> for me, I, it is. Yeah, I usually get itchy feet between three and five years. What, what has kept you then at Mercy Corps Northwest? Well, I think number one, for sure, it's the reason I joined it is uh, Mercy Corps. They're innovative. Um, I'm in a wheelchair and I don't get to go to the places where I would be working otherwise, which is around the world. So this is a, you know, frankly, a vicarious connection to the world and with the same freedom to innovate and, and create impact locally, much the way they do with country directors anywhere in the world. There's a lot of, uh, not, not a lot of people pumping the brakes. It's really, um, put forth a vision and go with it. So there's a lot of freedom. And there's a lot of unmet uh, challenges in in this region that that uh, we've got some freedom to explore and build programs to address. And I've I've known you for for a while. You were on our original board of directors from the Media Institute ten years ago, and and I've seen uh, a, a number of projects come through. It seems like you do get an inspiration, and then you follow through, and you get this great project up and going. Uh, there was one you were working with uh, women who had been incarcerated, and they were coming out of prison, and you're helping them get business skills to yes. start small businesses. And <laughs> it, it it seems wh where are you getting your ideas? I think they come from all of us on our team and our board. Uh, our our CEO at Mercy Corps refers to us or referred to us once as an incubation laboratory. Uh, so I, what's interesting is to see some of the ideas percolate externally from what we incubate here and things around the world that uh, are inspiring. We, we mold and shape them towards the realities here. Financial inclusion is a big one. Um, creating financial institutions to met unmet needs is is another and then you know incarceration u.s leads the world uh, embarrassingly with uh, levels of incarceration portland with mandatory sentencing i mean oregon with mandatory sentencing has a lot of people incarcerated now that wouldn't be now for doing the same thing uh, so we started working in the prison as you mentioned uh just over 10 years ago and just graduated our 14th class uh, a week ago today and those women are not going back to prison. Very, very few of them. It's the the Department of Corrections refers to it as their um, best program for reducing recidivism in the prison. But with that said, uh, Department of Corrections isn't funding us anymore. It did for about a year and a half, and now we're <clears throat> back to raising money um, from the community to do this work. I mean, and that that seems like a reality, but it also seems like uh, counterintuitive. I mean, here. Here is a program. I don't, I don't know what the rates are. Forty, fifty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate someone, and it would seem like quite the investment to give fifty, a hundred thousand uh, dollars for a program that's going to keep uh, a, a dozen or plus women out of prison every year. Yeah, it's uh, it's each class is thirty two weeks, and it's uh, thirty women. It's not a lot of people we're touching, but over ten years, it's enough that the the statistics measure up. Um, it'd be great if we could do. Um, classes for all the women. We were doing interviews uh, yesterday and today for the next round of classes, and we unfortunately have to say no to uh, 
about a hundred women or more um, that want to take the class that we just don't have room for. So we're taking those that have had multiple repeat um, incarcerations, those that have highly higher likelihood to come back and work with them, um, just because the, the the measure of impact is larger when we take the higher risk well, that's people. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, so I, there'd be some uh, programs that would probably take the, the most likely to succeed uh, or the, the, the ones who have the, the lowest risk factor as opposed to you guys are deciding to take the, the uh, highest uh, peak to climb. Yeah, that's what we decided to do. <laughs> um, and so far, so good. Um, then, then our reentry center, that's, that's near here in 1818 Martin Luther King. We started that in, uh, well, just, just shy of eight years ago. Um, and that has worked with as many as 1,500 people a year leaving incarceration. It's run by people with criminal backgrounds, felons. And that authenticity and the ability to meet immediate needs um, has been a gap in, in services delivered in Portland. It's not in institutional. Um, there's, it, it's not, um, you're not a file, you're not a case, you're a person. And that attitude is has made it a very popular and sought-after place with people that are on parole and probation, including those that come out of uh, federal parole and probation that because they're not on Multnomah County supervision, Multnomah County doesn't pay for those those folks. There's a halfway house out on Columbia Boulevard near the airport that uh, is a big facility, and there are few opportunities for them to get services, yet they're releasing to Multnomah County. They come to our center, and we're wrestling for money to keep that going. I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing work and it's, it's, um, uh, very interesting, uh, populations that you're working with. You grew up in Wyoming. Um, it, it, you're, you're working with, uh, Somali and Russian, Syrian populations. I, I, I imagine this is not, uh, a group of people that you grew up with in Wyoming. No, certainly not. <clears throat> no. Is that um, a disconnect for you at all or, or how, uh, w- I don't even know what the question is necessarily, but I, I, I think it's, I find it really interesting that you're uh, bridging into, you're, you're empowering people within the neighborhood, just like you're explaining with, you know, uh, former felons working with uh, recently released and, and, and how, where is your knowledge base coming from or how are you able to connect to uh, a person that you maybe don't have the same background with and, and provide them these essential leadership and life skills? Uh, maybe it is from Wyoming, you know, b- maybe because there is a certain hom- homogeneity and yet diversity within, you know, a, a racial homogenous that makes me more inclined to be in- interested in and exploratory in that regard. That's that's one thing I'd cite. The other thing is when I left college, uh, I traveled around the world for four years, most of it alone. So I spent a lot of time in places where there were boundaries, you know, physical boundaries, geographic boundaries, um, but also... Um, social, cultural, and political boundaries in particular that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And um, then you move to a place where where there's presumably a lot of uh, effort not to have boundaries, and Portland, Oregon has boundaries. Um, every place has boundaries. And so I, I don't, you know, from, from a wheelchair to somebody leaving incarceration to a, a minority population, somebody that doesn't speak this language, those kind of barriers, um, I guess, bother me. In general, John, it's been great talking to you. John is John Haynes is the executive director for Mercy Corps Northwest. Thank you for all the great work that Mercy Corps Northwest is doing. Thank you, Bill. The Nonprofit Hour is supported by Ristretto Roasters, locally roasted coffee since 2005, serving great coffee at five convenient locations in the Portland metro area. Location details and mail order coffee available at rrpdx.com. We're also proud community partners of Literary Arts. Get tickets now for their October 2nd special event with Francis Ford Coppola. For more info, find them online at literary-arts.org. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Molly Jean Bennett. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. 
Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to molly at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. And have a great week.